Welcome to the, I guess this is the first time someone's lied under oath podcast. I'm your host, Mark Zuckerberg. With me is my co-host, Edward Saverin. And we have a guest host with us today, the Winklevi, which in this case is actually just one person. Mason Haney, welcome to the podcast. That's me, I guess. Uh, well, I guess they, they're, those two are pretty attractive brothers, so I don't mind uh, being both of them at the same time. Yes, the culmination of the twins that's actually just one actor. Yeah. Army Hammer. Oh. Good guy. Oh, Can I didn't even realize that. Yeah, he had, a, he had a body double on set nice. and then the digitally. Please don't let me be the only person here that really does not like that movie. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. That's my favorite film of all time. No, it isn't. It is. No, it isn't. It's yeah. mine. Seriously? Are you, are, are you both trying to tell me that I'm wrong about what my favorite movie of all time is? <laughs> yes. <because laughs> I've got my I DVD case stand. right here. I could pull it out for you. I cannot stand David Fincher. But it's, wow. that's the least David Finchery of all the David Fincher films. If that yeah, but helps. It doesn't. Trust me, it doesn't. I mean, I think that anything Andrew Garfield is in, I'm probably going to yeah, Andrew Garfield seeing. is great. Yeah. Andrew Garfield is great. Have either of you seen Boy A? No. Uh, that was is it his, related like, to Kid A? No. <laughs> that was his first uh, notable film. I've only seen it once, uh, but it was really good. And I saw it just because after The Social Network, I was like, I want to see everything that this guy is in, um, mm. which has not been the case with uh, the other guy, with Jesse Eisenberg. Ah, uh, yes. Um, You're staying away from Justice League. <laughs> no, I, I, I did. He wasn't, he wasn't in Justice League. He was in Batman v Superman. He was in Batman v Superman, which was a, uh, the the Justice League terrible. universe. Yeah, I'm I'm even like the one guy who didn't like Wonder Woman, which mm. you know is like the generally speaking the one DC film that people at least think is good. The DC right. film that's decent. Yes, the decent. Nice. The the uh, the, the decent the, DC film. The the one DC talk movie that people actually liked. Um, it's it's the one DC Welcome that people talk show? about. It's the DC movie that people talk about. It's perfect. It's perfect. DC talk. So as you alluded to in that intro, what are we going to be talking about today, Chase? Lying under oath. I mean, just under oath. Just under oath? Yes. Justice there, League there will be no- Justice League under oath. Justice lying under so oath. So what you're saying is there will be no lies on this podcast. There will be no lies mm. on this podcast. We're not lying to you people. Trust us. And so there will be no lying when we tell you whether or not we think Cries of the Past is a five-star album. Ooh. Cries of the Past? What is that one? I thought their career started with their only chasing safety. <laughs> Let me tell you, their career did start with their only chasing safety. <laughs> their music making did not start with their only chasing safety. They did make music prior to that. Aaron Gillespie has been making music uh, with Under Oath, I think, since he was 14. Um, that sounds about right. Which included two uh, uh, debatably black metal or death metal albums, Acts of Depression and Cries of the Past, uh, which to me aren't very different from one another, but right. to uh, Jesus Freak Hideout critics, uh, the first one was worthy of only three stars and the second was worthy of five. Um for what it's worth, I do like Cries of the Past a lot more than Act of Depression. 
but it's just because I'm a sucker for those keyboards. Mm. Yes, uh, the most notable thing about Cries of the Past was the introduction of Chris Dudley, who uh, I guess became the second longest standing member of the band following Aaron. I guess that is what makes Cries of the Past pretty cool. So I guess opening question, do we all enjoy Cries of the Past? Do we like it as an album? I do. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely a very unique kind of thing, uh, especially for Under Oath. That, like, I think active depression is kind of like the prototype for Cries of the Past. Sure. And I never really listened much to active dis- depression, especially because um, the opening, like, cackle, whatever, the weird kind of laughing thing kind of freaked me out when I first heard it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly that. And uh, we actually, it's become like a running joke in in my apartment whenever we want to freak someone out. We just play that or or something. So Uh, that's kind of the extent. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I I don't think that should happen again. But um, (laughs) I mean, I think (laughs) the problem like with music like uh, Cries of the Past is that to me, it just feels like a bunch of like unrelated riffs that uh, they string together to make seven minute long songs and it all kind of just blends together. So for me, like I just kind of get bored with it regardless of whether or not those riffs are good or, or anything like that. Right. And that I don't necessarily feel that way about every song on cries of the past, but I have Mm -hmm. for certain feel that way about, um, was it and I dreamt of you? Yeah, and I yeah. dreamt of you. The longest song in uh, Under Oath's discography. And it really does feel like 11 minutes of one and a half minute long songs strung together. Right. This album is probably about four times as long as it needs to be because they mm-hmm. literally repeat every everything exactly four times. They, yeah. they play a riff, repeat it three times, and then move on to the next thing. Repeated three times, and then the next thing repeated three times, and I love it. The uh, the the middle track, "Walking Away," which there's only five tracks on this album, starts with the line, "The day I left you was the first mis- or the the worst mistake I ever made," and uh, it just repeats that four times in a row. Uh, that just kind of becomes more grating <laughs> each time. It it this is a weird genre for me in general mm-hmm. because. I don't necessarily see what like qualifies a great album versus like a very good black metal album. I it's hard for me to see like, what should make something considered a masterpiece of black metal versus just a uh, a very standardly great one because it's so many like sounds and the and the blast beats and the musical techniques kind of seems so like standard for the genre. Um, I think you have to do something sort of special to stand out. And so when you go back like into the earlier days of the genre, like I get why like an album like In the Nightside Eclipse by Emperor from 1994 would be considered a five-star album in this genre um, because it was so defining for the genre at an earlier period. 
And I understand why something like Sunbather by Deaf Heaven in 2013 could be considered uh, a masterpiece of the genre because it took the familiar element elements and did something very new with it by making it sound and feel more like a shoegaze album. But for this, like in the middle of the genre just being like a, a well-defined thing, um, like Mark, you were saying earlier, uh, like the, the only thing that really makes this album seem kind of, kind of special, or at least from my familiarity with the genre, which again, isn't that expansive, but still is Chris Dudley's keyboard playing. And not just the fact that he's there, but the fact that James Paul Weisner, uh makes it so prevalent in the mix mm-hmm. and really adds an interesting aura to all of it. Um, but outside of that, uh, could either of you help me see something that might be special about this album? Nope. <laughs> Mark? <laughs> I just think it sounds really cool. I mean, okay, so we're calling this me- a, a black metal album then? I, I, I guess that's what we're calling um, this? I think... Uh, could could either of you see an argument for death metal rather than black metal on this one? That's kind of the one of the more interesting things about Under Oath as a whole is just the fact that uh, they never really stick to one specific genre, and mm-hmm. every album kind of features them branching out um, in all these different ways. But I feel like with this one in particular, it, it because it's just to me a bunch of kind of unrelated riffs. Um, it seems like it was the most like. I guess blatant in terms of like we want to do this and we want to do that and let's just put it all together, right? Um, and so that's why I didn't I th- really find this yeah, album I think, that interesting. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what I like. And I mean, normally I don't like music that kind of feels like it's a mishmash of like in one idea and then the next idea and the mm-hmm. next idea. But um, to me. I think I'm getting the impression that I probably like this album a bit more than uh, than both of you guys. Yes. Um, to me, okay. this album is just a really you know enjoyable listen. Uh, two main things: one, it makes, and I know that this sounds like an insult. It's it's not an insult. It makes great background music, for one thing. <laughs> Interesting. There, because there background is definitely for what. A, <laughs> like, just, just what could you be just doing? Background. Where <laughs> this, this is anything where, where I'm just I, I'm just listening to death metal. Um, what or black metal do you music go to in the background? <laughs> <laughs> I just really like. I mean, honestly, just listening to the listening to the riffs. You know, okay. As compared to other, uh, like as compared to other albums with you know, better riffs or things that like are technically more proficient, these just stand out to me more. Because, I mean, these guys are teenagers still when they're making this album. Right. Like a mature, technically sound album. No, in a way, um, this album has more technical guitar playing than any of the future releases. Uh, Well, to be fair, yeah. Um, If I remember correctly, these two guitarists and this bassist are all gone by the time we get to They're Only Chasing Safety, their breakout album. I, I believe you are correct. So we've just got completely different types of players here who are more interested in um, recreating or regurgitating the type of awesome metal riffs that were happening from you know Black Sabbath through <laughs> Iron Maiden, whatever else. Once we move on to like Tim Mateig, uh and they start going for trying to uh, 
you know, use guitars to create certain moods or I think on Define the Great Line, they were just trying to make different, not necessarily difficult guitar riffs, but things that are a bit different than what you're used to hearing um, mm. and engaging more in like rhythm and discord than uh, like technically proficient playing. Uh, but here you, you really do just get like solos and cool riffs. And even like there's one song that breaks out into just like this crazy bass riff for a second. It's unlike anything that the band has had since. Um, and it's not necessarily a great thing. It's just a cool, impressive thing. Right. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a very interesting listen, uh, if, if for that alone. Um, so I kind of gather, Mark, that guitar, the guitar parts are the main draw for you with this album. And, and the keyboards. Okay, yes. I, I like the keyboard. So I wanted to ask both of you, um, what do you think about Aaron's drumming on this album? Um, Aaron's probably one of my favorite drummers just because like so many of the things he does just don't make any sense, I guess, when it, <laughs> like as a drummer. Yeah. And so, uh, it's just so much fun. And I think, I mean, I guess on this album in particular, there's, he just rushes like all the time and, uh, yes. does all these things that like, I, when I hear them, I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess you can do that, but. I don't know. It doesn't make me feel any particular way. So I think, uh, like over time, he got more interested in like in creating like his own kind of, I guess, input. Um, like in later albums, whereas with this one, it just felt like he was just trying out all these different techniques and yeah. kind of like, yeah, I guess what kind of going back to what you said earlier, Chase. Um, it seems to me like Aaron and also just the band as a whole was more interested in being impressive on this album right. than they were in trying to create something like aesthetically pleasing or or something that would move listeners i guess yeah um and they they accomplished that so there's that but yeah um that's just kind of the the general tone i get from this album whenever i listen to it i i totally agree like this is these are the uh <laughs> these are like the high high school seniors who want right. to win the talent show, but also be dark and heavy enough to upset all the teachers. Um, yeah. And they probably did both of those things. Yeah, yeah, probably. It's it's so funny. Like, Aaron obviously was a very good drummer back in these days, but sometimes it's so messy. And yeah. it, at the very beginning of the second song, Giving Up Hurts the Most, like, his double kick is so incredibly <laughs> sloppy. Yeah. Like, what were you even thinking? Like, did you not get a chance to re-record this? And it, it, there, there, it, there's a cool sense to which it's obvious. Like, none of it is quantized. None of it is edited. Like, they right. went with the takes that he performed. Um, but just seeing how his career has evolved, it, I'm so glad that he's at a, a point of being far more tasteful than he was mm. on this album. And it's, I'm especially not to jump too far ahead, but the fact that he spent a few years as a touring drummer for other artists, most notably yeah. for Paramore. Paramore. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and now he's getting back into Under Oath. That really excites me, um, that he's been uh, forced to play parts that the parts that Elon Rubin recorded for Paramore's self-titled <laughs> album uh, is just so exciting because um, he's really, he, he's had to do other genres and of course he did other genres with The Almost as well. Um, this this is an interesting album 
that's notable for being the only album where he was the drummer for Under Oath but didn't do any singing. Um, mm. And so the uh, the vocals were all done by Dallas Taylor. So what do you all think okay. of Dallas on this album? Mark, you want to go first? Uh, can't understand a word he says. <laughs> he sounds great, but I can't understand a word he says, and that bugs me. You couldn't even understand when he uh, says... The day I left you was the worst mistake I ever made four times in a row. Okay, fine. I understood that, but maybe just because he, un- he said it four times in a row. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing about comparing or trying to describe the old Under Oath versus the new Under Oath with, with uh, Spencer Chamberlain is that uh, if you like one better, then at least for me, like my instinct is just to to listen to that exclusively and like in favor almost everything so so basically i just i love new under oath and so yeah. everything when i listen to old under oath is very uh hard for me to accept as under oath in some ways and so uh like with dallas in particular i just think spencer is like 10 times better in every way and he's also improved uh with each of their releases so with dallas it's just like i don't know i don't really care much at all about his singing or his screaming, um, it doesn't really do anything for me. The, if the funny thing, now, the same thing applies with Dallas with The Changing of Times, yeah. You know, I can't understand a word that he says on that album. However, with Malian and the Sons of Disaster, where he's a lead vocalist there, he mm-hmm. is, like, crisp and crystal clear, and it feels like there's less effort going into there. Um, feels like there's less effort is that a good thing (laughs) but anyway uh, spencer it feels like he's overdoing it on in a lot of things especially on they're only chasing safety i'm not a big fan of they're only chasing safety um but um i think he he just feels like he's overselling over overdoing you guys are looking me looking at me like I'm nuts. Maybe I am nuts. I don't know. <laughs> you are. Uh, it's. Uh, I think there's a, there's an interesting correlation here between Under Oath and Norma Jean. It's like it's it's fine if you like Under Oath's earlier stuff, and it's fine if you like Norma Jean's earlier stuff. <laughs> but uh, when you say Norma Jean, I think Corey. Mm-hmm. And if you like Josh, like go listen to the Chariot. <laughs> you know, if you say Under Oath, I think Spencer. And if you like Dallas, go listen to Maylene. So. My main detriment, detriment, uh, with this album, is how little of it I remembered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, way back when, like eighth grade, I would regularly force myself to listen to every single song in my musical collection. So, like my entire iTunes wow. was on my iPod, and I would start with the A's. Mm-hmm. of uh artists and listen through everything and it was a very very long process that probably started with amberlin uh <laughs> or amberlin or something and so towards the end of my ipod at the end of the like hundreds of songs that i'd be listening to i would get to under oath and i would always be really 
really worried about getting to these two albums as I feel like it was just going to take forever to sludge through them. And this is long before I had any sort of ear for um, like really heavy music. Um, I, this was before I was interested in it at all. And so getting through these two albums was always really tough for me. And so I have actually have very explicit memories, almost as if it was like PTSD, like something traumatic from my childhood. Very explicit memories of me getting to acts of depression and cries of the past. Be like, oh, it's time. I've got to do it. Um, so because of that, I know that I've heard these albums at least like three or four times each from back in eighth, ninth grade. And so revisiting cries of the past for this album, I didn't remember a single thing except for like the screams in the title track and like the, the, you know, the, like the talking and, um, that's the only thing that stuck with me over the years versus a lot more uh, that's memorable from Changing of Times and the Early Chasing Safety, which to be fair, I've also listened to plenty more times. But really, I just, you know, Mark, you were saying the guitar parts are memorable for you because they're played a few times in a row. Nothing even felt familiar to me, even though like I've heard this album multiple times, it all felt new in a bad way that music that you've heard before shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be um, like big picture. Even if this actually is some sort of revolutionary album for the genre. uh, Is it five stars? My answer is no. So what would you give it? I have no clue. (laughs) Um, I could imagine as low as two and a half. I could imagine as high as four. Uh, I I really wouldn't feel comfortable personally writing a review for this album until I spent more time with black metal from the 90s. Uh, Just to contextualize my mind and how I'm critiquing it and why I'm uh, liking it or disliking it for different reasons. So Yeah, this is the type of album for me that I think I understand when uh, older people say heavy music just sounds like noise. Um, <laughs> and like because it's these strung together riffs and uh, it's not really memorable, but it is impressive. I would probably say somewhere between 2.5 and 4 as well. Nice. <laughs> Such yeah. wide ranges. My goodness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'd give this album a four. Okay, so we're nose all around, but possibly, potentially, fours all around. Um, That's true. (laughs) But I find it, I I find it really funny how both of you guys can like, like Chase, you're describing that listening to this album was like a traumatic experience (laughs) that left no impact, but you're still considering a four. So I I find that interesting. Well, I so to clarify, the the traumatic experiences were, you know half of my life ago versus now where I, I do see um, like a lot of like raw potential on this album. I do hear a lot of impressive riffs. I can make out a lot of um, different things that are happening instrumentally and structurally that back then was just going over my head. 
Um, not only because I was a newer fan to rock music in general, but I wasn't at all a fan of uh, any like heavy metal in any uh, subgenre, any form. How did it end up on your iPod then? Oh, uh, because I basically just took whatever my brother gave me. It was that phase nice. for me okay. where I was. Um, I had become like a Thrice fan. And through that, became like an Emery fan, became an Under Oath fan. Uh, this is circa 2005. So this would have been uh, right around the time, uh, or basically the, the time between They're Only Chasing Safety and Define the Gray Line, mm-hmm. uh, when like as part of like this new scene that I was getting into, and being a part of the whole like emo movement in the Warp Tour crowd, um, I like Under Oath became one of those bands that you latch onto. Is like this is one of my favorite bands, so it became important mm-hmm. for me to know those earlier albums and to be like just like it like in the know. Like I, I needed to hear these albums. I needed to have these albums on my iPod, uh, but I never actually wanted to listen to them. And like me listening through so, my iPod. So, in through. other words, you needed to hear the albums just so you could tell everybody how much you didn't like them. Um, it was more about just like being knowledgeable about the artists that um, I was a fan of and, and becoming uh, well versed in the music of the scene. And so, so, it was very easy for me to get hooked on an album and not want to listen to anything but the one album. So, that practice of listening to my iPod all the way through was a very intentional decision to get myself to listen to everything and to constantly be hearing my collection and hearing the, the, the CDs I owned and hearing the music that my brother was giving me um, and not getting too stuck on one thing. As if, if, you had, if you had let me back in eighth grade, I probably could have listened to nothing but the Everglow by May and been completely fine <laughs> with it. Or nothing but uh, the question by Emery and been fine with it. So, um, even back then, you were pruning yourself to be a reviewer one day. Totally. <laughs> this week's episode is sponsored by Eufala. Eufala is the side project of country singer-songwriter Jordan Whitmore. Whitmore's been releasing great music for years that's perfect for fans of Miranda Lambert or Brandy Carlisle, but the music of Eufala takes a more worship-oriented bent that would be great for fans of last year's Bethany Bernard album, the new Stephanie Gretzinger album, or fans of acoustic worship in general. The very first Eufala album just released, titled Between the Hills, a collection of 10 tracks inspired largely by the Psalms. You can find it now on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify. You can also go to her website, youfollowmusic.com, to stream the album, see live videos, buy merch, and more. That's E-U-F-A-U-L-A music.com. Now I'm going to play a clip of her song, You Keep My Life, and stick around until the end of the podcast to hear the full track. Now here's You Keep My Life by Youfollow.
You keep my life, you keep me. You keep my life, you keep me. So I won't worry or dread the night. Eighth grade, ninth grade was when, uh, th- like the under oath type of music became appealing. Um, yeah, and they were totally like, I guess a, a gateway band for me, uh, because I think they were the very first band that I listened to that was not something that would be on, uh, like mainstream Christian radio. Um, okay. So like before I was all Switchfoot and Ryan K and, and all that <laughs> stuff, but yeah. immediately, yeah, uh, immediately I went to Under Oath because I think I heard the almost um, one of their singles on the radio and say this sooner, not that one, but uh, not that one. No, I think it was a uh, hands is what it's called. Oh, from the next album. Oh, that's yeah. a good song. That Monster good Monster song. was my favorite. Almost album, uh, like no competition. But yeah, for sure. I don't remember but, no competition. <laughs> Gosh. All right, that's an average Mark joke. <laughs> Maybe a little bit below. I would average. say that's a below average Mark joke. All right. <laughs> but I think, uh, like, it was weird because I went from stuff like Switchfoot to Under Oath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because of that, I became like very, I guess, emotionally attached to Under Oath, mm-hmm. and like they, they instantly had a special place in my heart. Yeah. Um, and part of it was like this, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade rebellion kind of phase where uh, I had to essentially convince my parents to let me buy like three of their albums um, by playing like "Some Will Seek Forgiveness" and like two of the the like. <laughs> I think uh what was it? The the one with the Russian psalm, Psalmonier oh. or something like that. Uh Psalmonier, uh, yeah, with uh the preacher in the background. Yeah, basically like the three like tracks with minimal screaming and like the most Christian type of lyrics that they yeah. have. Oh, that's um, so funny. I mean it works, so Yeah, totally. But, but that's, yeah, that's just all because parent of needs that. to hear. Right. <laughs> Headphones for um, the rest. Yeah, I think that for I don't think that's a really uh unique story when it comes to Under Oath. Um I feel like there's a lot of kids that like because Under Oath was just riding this wave of popularity in uh, with Define the the Great Line and they're only chasing safety. A lot of kids that were growing up in churches and everything became like interested in like oh this is the the like definitive screaming christian band out there yeah um which is interesting just because the direction that they've taken with their music and uh with how they want to be associated has kind of changed since then but um, right i think that that's definitely where their their career trajectory started with was christian kids that wanted to listen to something that wasn't on the radio essentially yeah 
and that's uh exactly where our uh conversation is headed um mark what was your well i i and so i guess let's just give our introduction i mean my experience with under oath so what's what's your yeah story with under oath do you have one i really don't i mean i didn't start i did never listen to under oath until i was in college you know just they they had they had a song that was on, I think, like Madden 2005 yeah. or something. But my brother replaced all our music with Jars of Clay anyway, so That's I never right, heard it. Right. Okay, so was you you listening to Under Earth? Was that just in like your 2011-2012 phase of uh, researching a lot of different Christian artists? Yeah, literally. I just am like, oh, Under Oath. They were popular. You're I should so know boring. them. You just you just binged Christian music for two whole years, and so your story for discovering every artist that you've listened to is just somewhere in that two years <laughs> they they fell into your schedule. Um, for me, Under Oath became like one of the bands to listen to if you were gonna get into this scene at all. So 2004, I was I was just being handed like artists like. Oh, you like Thrice? You need to listen to Emery. Oh, you like Thrice? You need to listen to The Receiving Under Sirens. Oh, you like Thrice? You need to listen to Norma Jean. Oh, you like Thrice? You need to listen to Under Oath. Um, I remember I had this friend, Drew, who... Do uh, you like Thrice? <laughs> who told you? <laughs> uh, I had this friend, Drew, who, who would fight me over Under Oath being the better band. Like, no, no, Thrice is better. You're wrong. And then Define the Great Line came out, and I was like, oh, crap, maybe he's right. <laughs> um, I still remember, uh, I, I, like, my best friend at the time, uh, to this day, a, a very strong believer, um, but he was always kind of a bit more middle lane in his music tastes. And I, uh, we ended up going down, like, different paths because I became more, uh, like extremely music oriented in my interests. He started giving up music and uh, going down the sports path. But right before that, uh, because they are mutually exclusive, <laughs> felt like it sometimes. Um, but right before uh, we diverged and we're still friends today, so not a big deal, but this, this kid, Tyler, I was trying to get him on the under oath train and his birthday was like a week after define the great line came out. So I got him to find a great line for his birthday, which I'm not sure if he ever actually listened to. And I still remember having this conversation with him of like trying to show him the band. And he came up and he's like, what does your drowning or I'm drowning in my sleep have to do with Christianity? I'm like, I don't know. I, that's, <laughs> but it's, it's funny, like Mason, you were saying, like there's. There's these three songs that have something to do with right. Jesus, but for the most part, not not much. Um, to be fair, on those first two albums, <laughs> on the lyrics that you can't understand, on the lyrics that you <laughs> cannot understand one single bit. Yeah, no. Listening to the cries of the past, I I I, I thought I was hearing the name of Jesus once or twice, but couldn't quite make it out. So. The closing line of the last is Jesus Christ makes the blackness white. I know that. All because right. I read the lyrics. I'm digging down I with that. It. He's not wrong. I'm um, not wrong. <laughs> uh, so I, my funniest memory with early Under Oath is uh, my 14th birthday. 
I had a bunch of friends over, um, which I was accumulating some scene friends who were also like learning how to play like bass or guitar or drums. And I basically everyone at this party at some point in the future, I was like in a band with quote unquote. Wow. Um, one of these bands never ever played a show or wrote a song. We were just in a band together. <laughs> it counts. And then, uh, yeah, one, an, another one of these bands that, uh, this group of friends formed, we, uh, tried out for a talent show at our school and the drummer forgot all of the drum parts for the song and just started playing uh, the beat for Drop It Like It's Hot. Dun, da, dun, dun, da. And it was in not even in the right tempo. So he was just in his own world <laughs> at a completely different speed playing one of the most basic drum, drum beats imaginable while we were over here playing this like, you know, scene ripoff song with some screaming and uh how avant-garde so right so we actually like that was the tryout for the talent show and we asked him to leave and not play with us so we ended up playing the talent show this like supposedly heavy song but without a drummer so it was just like a, a like a totally like clean like straight to the amp bass and then two semi-distorted guitars on these like cheap amps playing this uh like emo post-hardcore song and somehow was, you guys won it was an everybody wins kind of competition. <laughs> um, but uh, no, so this birthday party, my pretty sure it was my 14th birthday. Um, got my like first acoustic guitar as, as the gift. But uh, we stayed up the entire night hardcore dancing. We, we were in my living room. We, we disobeyed that Chiodo song titled no hardcore dancing in the living room we pushed all the furniture to the side of the walls we took like pillows and blankets and covered up all the like sharp corners we got my cd player we put in the changing of times and played the changing of times on repeat probably eight or nine times in a row oh, man. while like hardcore dancing and like pushing each other around and just going at it the entire night long it's the most warped tour thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and it was in the middle of the winter, baby. Oh man. Um so that's that's my that's my story. And I actually it was funny is like I wasn't a huge fan of that album. So there there was a portion in the night where I was like, guys, can we stop listening to Under Oath? And so I put in The Illusion of Safety by Thrice instead. And we tried hardcore dancing to that, and it just wasn't this right style of music and the songs weren't like a good tempo for it so we like took thrice out and put the changing of times back in <laughs> and then kept going another few times um i think i need a definition of hardcore dancing i was never moshing a kid. okay just moshing well no 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 it wasn't it wasn't moshing per se moshing has a greater emphasis on uh, just like violence yeah well like the crowd interacting with one one another in, in 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 a violent way, like hardcore dancing, doesn't need anyone else there. Hardcore dancing, uh, it, it's kind of like swinging and punching, just the air, mm-hmm. and so it, it's like kicks and swings that are in line with the music. So um, is moshing like a subgenre of hardcore dancing? I think they're separate entity entities that can intermingle as desired. Great. So it's one of those things that like when when people are hardcore dancing and they start hitting each other, 
either it's an accident or they're like purposefully being a jerk and just want to hurt someone. Um, most, uh, most crowds, uh, they're, they're not trying to touch each other or hurt each other, but there's some people who are so like flamboyant in their flailing that they're inconsiderate of the fact that people might be around them within a punching length. And so they'll just hit people and it's like, well, you're in my way. Um, Hardcore shows were always really annoying for that reason, because there's a version of hardcore dancing that's peaceable and fun and just like goofy. And then there's always like the guy or two who just wants to ruin it and they don't care who they punch or kick. I take Um, it you weren't a flamboyant flailer then. Nay, good sir. Nay. I was very controlled. Um, also, I mean, these guys who were like, like I say, the the FFs, they were usually like, like you, know, like thicker, like more muscular guys too. So they actually had some thrust. Um, mm-hmm. where like I had like no muscles on my bones, so me accidentally hitting someone would have been uh pretty more painful to you than it would be for them. <laughs> it would have been a non sequitur. It would have been just like something that happened in their day and they completely forgot about it. Slightly distracting, but not. Um, immobilizing but so it was funny re-listening to the changing of times back to back with cries of the past in preparation for this episode that like again back in the day when i was listening to this music i i really had no categories in my brain for the different genres of metal and now listening to the changing of times i realize that it's not the like middle of the road post hardcore album that I would have assumed that it was listening to it back in 2005. And while they were making a big shift away and the album starts with the huge chorus, clean singing single of, uh, the sun still sleeps. There there are a lot of, uh, moments throughout the album that just bring that like black metal right back in a way that totally went over my head and revisiting the album actually surprised me a lot. And unlike Cries of the Past, I, I found a lot of it to be familiar and I remembered a lot of it, but I just had a new way of contextualizing it that actually surprised me. Um, and I was like, wow, this is this is a lot heavier <laughs> than, than I recognized uh, back when I was listening to this in my in my youths. Uh, but I, did, I didn't quite answer the question earlier about what my thoughts are about Dallas Taylor. And I think he's fine. I think he kind of jumped around too often with different styles of screaming and trying to do different things. But I'll admit, like, after listening to Cries in the Past, Cries of the Past and Changing of Times back to back, when I finally got to their only chasing safety, it, hearing Spencer was was a breath of fresh air. <laughs> um, so y'all, y'all cool to move into their only chasing safety? Let's do it. We, can... we, we have a visual <laughs> from Mark, so <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. Mason, what do you think of the only Chasing Safety? So when I first, again, since they were like the first band that I listened to that wasn't on Christian radio, uh, there's something about like the aesthetic of the, the artwork and the teal color mm-hmm. that is on the, the lyrics and everything. Um, that for me just became like this instantly iconic album, like totally. because of 
yeah because of the visuals which is like i think maybe just because it felt i was feeling uh like i needed to be edgier in my music taste at the time uh edgy yeah it made it um regardless of like how the music itself sounded like i instantly was like oh i know i'm gonna love this um but when i was listening to chasing safety for this episode um i realized that like the kind of the melding of like pop and hardcore music uh is something that i like really dislike um especially <laughs> with uh what is it reinventing your your exit yeah that is like that's just a pop song with some screaming on it up and, against the wall up against yeah. the wall and so like there's a lot of that stuff on chasing safety that really bugs me now <laughs> yeah um and especially i think uh, Spencer's uh, screaming in particular is very uh, it just doesn't feel developed it feels like he uh, needed to work on it a little bit more I guess um, but there's definitely like two or three songs on here that I think are still some of the best stuff that they put out there um, which ones? I think It's Dangerous Business is like like I can always get down to that one Yeah. Um, and Maybe I don't feel very receptive today. It's it's really like it's really dark in a way that none of their other music is dark, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um like it feels very much like it feels a little bit out of place on the album, but it also feels like it, it takes you to somewhere that you weren't expecting. And there's something about that that's really interesting. Um yeah. but I think basically the rest of it is kind of like uh it just feels like they were intentionally trying to distance themselves from what they were before. Um, yeah. And I think I've read a few interviews where they say that uh, they're intentionally trying to craft a more mainstream sound, um, not like at the expense of musical integrity, but like definitely with the intention of uh, attracting new and different fans and, and kind of increasing their, their status in that way. Yeah. Um, so for me, like this is kind of the other than the old underlist stuff, which I just don't really listen to. This is uh, kind of the bottom of the barrel of the with underlist. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that I'm. I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but everyone I've talked to disagrees with me. So hopefully, uh, you guys maybe agree. <laughs> um, I think that they've gone better with each release, and so um, for me, this is it's just. It's not something I'm going to revisit very often. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mark, where do you stand on this album? We have a visual eh, once again. <laughs> Why am I even on this podcast? I, I, I pff. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason why I'm here is to shrug and say, meh, well, eh, eh. I mean, okay, so... Is that your general feeling for Underoath as a whole? I think that's his general feeling Honestly, that really is my... <laughs> except except for maybe Define the Great Line. I really do like Define the Great Line. Okay, so if Define the Great Line is my favorite Underoath album, to be honest, probably Cries of the Past is my second favorite. They're only chasing safety. I didn't listen to it until I was in college. You know, I don't have, like, this rebellious 
these rebellious years of I've got to listen to all this solid state tooth and nail music. <laughs> so and as a college student, the lyric it, it just do you feel your no heartbeat impact. racing? Do you taste the fear in her sweat? Didn't resonate with you. <laughs> it's I don't even remember those lyrics. That's how much impact this Weren't album. Were you has a left runner me. in college, Mark? Yeah, I listened to Iona. <laughs> <laughs> why, why does this running? I listened to Iona well, when I, would I pumped myself up. When you're running, you like your heartbeat would be racing, and you'd taste, taste. some fear. Yeah, in your sweat. In your sweat. I don't know. Actually, no. My running song. My running song was On Berlin's Finn. I'm gonna keep pronouncing it On Berlin. I know it's pronounced Anne Berlin, but I'm saying On Berlin. That was my song. That was my workout jam. All right, Mock. Um, You'd work out for the full 12 minutes of that song and then... Eight minutes and 56 seconds. What are you talking about? Come on. Oh, sorry. I remember that song being 22 minutes long. (laughs) Oh, no, that's a different song. Or feeling 22 minutes long. Okay, so... They're only chasing safety. This is really, really funny to me because, uh, Mason, if if we had had this conversation two days ago, Mm. I would have been completely on board with you that this is a very immature album um, and they didn't know what they were trying to go for sound wise. And it's just kind of like template, like heavy part, soft part, heavy part, soft part Mm -hmm. that really didn't like it got them. Uh, a lot of fame because it was a very trendy album and very catchy. Hot topic uh, very, album. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the perfect Hot Topic album. Like, I'm pretty sure Hot Topics that don't even sell CDs anymore still sell that CD. Um, <laughs> but if you just ask for it, they've got it like behind the desk. Uh, <laughs> but am I missing something when you're saying Hot Topic? The, have you never gone shopping at a Hot Topic? I live in Minnesota. Yeah, there's probably no hot topic. Oh my gosh, they don't have hot topic in Minnesota. There's no <laughs> hot topic uh, demographic in Minnesota. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's like the scene store. Oh, so you're not you're not missing much. It used to be like the place to go for band T-shirts and right. CDs. Like they would sell like alternative press magazine there and have a lot of cool trendy stuff. And now. Because that topic isn't as hot anymore, and they didn't want to change their name to lukewarm topic, uh, they now sell more trendier items that, like, they, like things related to the most popular anime shows and movies, uh, things related to the coolest like Disney animated films, uh, trendy things like Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, and then T-shirts more for like legacy bands, um. Are kind of more where they live now. Um, very, it's it's an interesting store. I kind of like visiting just to see what they're still selling. <laughs> um, I I very rarely buy anything, although sometimes when they've got uh, Mega Man stuff, I I, I splurge Ooh. on that. Um, oh yeah, they have like the pops, you know, those like yeah vinyl figures. Uh, they have a whole wall of those. So your mind That's... was changing on chasing safety. Right, so I've, I, I probably haven't listened to that album in ten years, right. and part of the reason why I haven't listened to it is because I I started hating it, like I really thought, especially in light of 
um, the the music that they released after they're only chasing safety. I I was like, this is this is a cheesy poppy version of what they would become, and mm. it's like the lyrics don't seem to mean anything, and it's really just uh, Spencer screaming a little bit, and then Aaron coming in for like a catchy pop punk chorus. And so I've had it just written off in my mind as a bad album for a decade. And I heard it for the, you know, the first time in however so many years yesterday. And it I almost, it's like I reconnected with a part of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so just giddy all for nostalgia it. Nostalgia bomb. It, it might just be a nostalgia bomb, but it also might be like that, like my pretentiousness about the genre went away um i'll tell you this i was it's listening probably to probably both it was a mix of multiple things for sure there's a lot of factors involved and one of them has to do with a story i heard about the making of the album where they were writing and recording these songs before they had spencer hmm. and they were basically preparing themselves for the possibility of recording an album with no screaming on it. And so they were writing and recording this music with the idea in mind that Aaron would just be singing the whole record. Wow. And so the fact that there aren't too many crazy riffs, there aren't too many heavy parts, there's a lot of just like straight chord playing and and much more like streamlined rock music happening um, is, I believe, for that reason... And so Spencer's involvement was more after the fact of him like just coming in and doing his thing over the parts that they just allotted to him. And so mm. Define the Great Line was really their first music with like being written with Spencer in mind and Spencer having more involvement in the writing process and them knowing like, hey, we're a heavy band again. And so really, if you took Spencer's screaming out of it, They're Only Chasing Safety isn't a heavy album at all. Right. <laughs> it really yeah. isn't. And being able to listen to it again, knowing that, and with that mindset in mind, and, and what they thought they were trying to accomplish, I think they actually do it really well. Like, it really is a pop rock album that happened to get a screamer for the verses. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I just... <laughs> I mean, I think that makes a lot more sense of the album, but it, right. I don't know if it makes it better. Sure. <laughs> and maybe that's where the nostalgia bomb is exploding in my ears. But I, I loved it in a way that was so bizarre for me, because it's like the the, the cynic. It's just like I was like shedding a, a cynic skin and just coming out like a new being that was like, you know what? Like I'm I'm okay with the fact that I've been telling people for a decade that I hate this album, and it might not be true anymore. And I'm actually totally fine with it now. And it was just it was so. And there's definitely a very, a very real extent to which it was just comfortable. It was like, it's nice to be back. It's nice not <laughs> to care whether I hate this or not, or whether it's good or not, and just to enjoy it. Um, Jace, you need to write a song called Shedding a Cynic Skin. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Yes, Mark? <laughs> oh, I was just wondering, um, so if they were making this album specifically to be uh, like a vehicle for... Aaron as a lead vocalist, then what was gonna what was gonna happen with Dallas? Because did he play an instrument with the band or was he just a screamer? He was just a vocalist and he had he had quit at that point. Oh, um, I see. 
So this was after Dallas had left, but before they had added Spencer. Right. That there, oh, there, that there, there was about? a okay. there was a notable gap where um they didn't have a screamer. Dallas has left. They they were really having trouble finding a replacement. They had the uh momentum of the sun still sleeps. And so obviously like them being less of a metal band and more of a chorus band, more of a singing band was what people wanted. And they, they were kind of buying into that and adjusting to having other new members, like basically a brand new guitarists. Um, so they were just kind of working with that and they had, you know, they, they needed to keep up their momentum with the new fans. They had their deal with uh, solid state. They needed to make another record. Um, so they're just moving forward with their career and not letting mm-hmm. the loss of um, Dallas slow them down. And then they found Spencer at just the right time to uh, get him in and make him an integral part of the record. And they were only chasing safety is what we got. Uh, and then, like I said, uh, Define the Great Line was really the, the, the next step in Spencer actually being like the, the front man being as much of a visionary in the musical output as the other members were. It's interesting. Just, I mean, under earth has been pretty open, um, about their, like all the struggles they've had. It seems like every, seems like every step they've had to make has been like incredibly painful to move forward. And so that's just another, I guess I didn't even, I wasn't aware that that was part of their journey as well. If, if we, uh, don't include uh, Disambiguation, the album that had a different drummer on it. Um, I think the members now are the same as the ones from They're Only Chasing Safety. Maybe just yeah. one guitarist is different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. I think they're all the same, actually. Which is another like great argument for like why like this is Under Oath. Um, mm. like, they, they didn't really have any consistency with the band until like this album forward. Um, and then they were able to make what plenty of people uh would consider their magnum opus uh and it was just i when an album has great first week sales that is largely based on the success of the previous album so they're only chasing safety was really the album that exploded in the scene and made under oath this household name for this little corner of rock music and you know got like you were saying mason turned so many like these Christian kids into uh, heavy music fans. But mm-hmm. I don't think anyone was expecting the the little band who could to debut <laughs> at number two on the charts with uh Define the Great Line. Yeah. And that was you know, it's it's now a gold certified album. But man, that thing was huge. They were a behemoth of a band at this point, and it didn't seem like anything could stop them. And we're, I think we're all agreed that Define the Great Line is one of their best. One I, of their best. I think yeah. it's their best. I, it's the only album that whenever I re-listen to it and revisit it, that I can distinctly remember like more or less every... Now, I'm funny because I don't really you learn song titles. Not that funny. Yes, I am funny. I, I don't really ever learn song titles on like anything I ever listen to because I always listen to albums straight through. But Define the Great Line is the only Under Oath album that I can really listen to that I know from front to back and can recognize from front to back. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, uh, this, if there was any album that really like challenged me to be a, like a legitimate fan of heavy music, this was it. Um, rather than an illegitimate fan. Well, no, I, I that's kind of funny. Like I was an illegitimate fan of heavy music before this album. Um, like I was. I was telling people I was a fan of like every time I die and as lay dying because that was the thing to do. And those were the, but bands you were lying about of. as I lay dying. <laughs> yeah. We said there would be no lying in this podcast. Come on, chase. Under oath. I guess this is the first time that someone's lied while under oath. Yeah. It's the thing was like, I, I wasn't like, I liked the few as lay dying songs that were big on like these pretty choruses. Um, you know, I preferred listening to the softer bands like May. Uh, I really wasn't into uh, heavy screaming. You liked Tooth and Nail, not Solid State. Basically. Um, and this, even this, like, it didn't really, like, push me into uh, listening to a lot of heavy music. But it became, like, the heaviest album to that point that I, like, actually loved and would listen to a lot and share with others. Um, and I think like, even like long-term, this probably wasn't true way back then, but long-term my favorite song on the album has been, Oh shoot. It's like track 10. It's the one that's just screaming. Oh yeah. Um, everyone looks so good from here. Yep. Yeah. I think that's the best song on the album. Interesting. So I think, that's the, probably the second best song on the album. What would you with, put as first? To me, I think Writing on the Walls is the best song that they've made in their entire discography. Wow, um, okay. I think what makes Under Oath special um, is the way that all their pieces fit is together. It, maybe we, why don't yeah, we that one. sit right here for half an hour? Okay. Yeah, I think that like, all of the individual parts of Under Oath aren't really anything that unique other than maybe Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, a lot of the guitar work is just uh, like basically open drop D with like, I don't know, they're playing like E and F at the same time and it sounds all yeah. discordant and whatever. But like when they, all the pieces together is what makes it like this really interesting kind of um, like completely unique aesthetic. I think writing on the walls kind of captures that um, across the board. And it's just such a chaotic, like, like it it doesn't really stop for the entire song. And something about Aaron's drumming on that song in particular is like, it's just one of my all time favorite uh, drum performances. And so like, I think overall, like this album, like is pretty strong the entire way through, and that's probably why people say it's their, it's their best work. Yeah. Um, but especially, I think with writing on the walls, it's very much like a, the definitive Under Oath song for me. That's fair. And it's got to be one of the most popular ones too. I think yeah. another reason why this might be one of the last albums, or like. Th- one of the albums that a lot of people point to as a favorite. It's also the last album where they really mattered. Interesting. Um, I, I know that's kind of harsh, <laughs> um, but they, 
they didn't really have the cultural relevance anymore when mm. the next album, Lost in the Sound of Separation, came out. Right. Um, for me, the difference between Define the Great Line and Lost in the Sound, Sound of Separation is kind of like the difference. <laughs> this is going to sound silly. The difference between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. <laughs> um, like, they're so similar that I right. understand an argument for either of them to be better. Um, but in a lot of ways, um, like plot wise, three is just a redo of two and mm-hmm. like, it's just like a refinement and you know, lost in the sound of separation is v- the smallest jump the band has ever made from album to album. Yeah. Um, and it's really just a refinement of what they did on Define the great line, which to what, on the one hand speaks of like how I think they were really getting into a, a nice um, pocket of like the sounds that they wanted to go for and the type of music that they were good at writing together. But it didn't really excite me at all when Lost the Sound of Separation came out. Um, too many of the songs felt like a very sincere rehash, um, which I think the worst offender, worst offender in that regard was Desperate Times, Desperate Measures which was all the worse for that being the lead single <laughs> for the album. And I was like, the first thing we heard, I was like, oh no, they're just doing the exact same thing again. Um, yeah. It sounds the album, a lot like writing on the walls. Right. And so I, the lot, a lot of the album does go further and deeper in. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't seeing that back then. Actually, it was funny. I, I basically, like, I read a few reviews and listen to like the iTunes samples and just bought four songs. I never bought <laughs> Lost in the Sounds of Separation. I just owned those four songs. Um, based was, like, off of the 10 second samples? Based off the 30 second samples right. and some reviews. Um, and basically decided that these were the four songs I liked. Uh, it was uh, Emergency Broadcast, uh, The End is Near. Uh, what? Desolate Earth, the end is here. Um, yeah, the one right before that, the most like the one song that got some like Christian rock radio play. Um, Too bright to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then another song that I I can't quite recall. Um, but uh, so earlier you said that you think that they got better with each album. So you think this album's mm-hmm. better than Define the Great Line? I think that. I kind of agree with you. It's 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 kind of a rehash and technically a refinement, even though it's not uh, necessarily an improvement. It's just mm-hmm. like, to me, it felt like they were more comfortable. And in some ways, like for this kind of genre, that's not necessarily uh, something to be striving for. But I do think that even though it's very similar, I felt like this with this album, with Lost in the Sound, they... It seemed to me like they were trying to expand the genre. Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot more dynamic, I think, on this album. A lot more peaks and valleys. Um, and to me, there's also like some of the the heaviest stuff that New Under Oath has done. Um, like breathing in a new mentality is just like, again, it's like this nonstop, like kind of in your face track and. Um, I think the first time I heard the only survivor was uh, miraculously unharmed, which just starts out with like, yeah, like just really like 
insane kind of just beat you over the head kind of sound. Yeah. Um, to me, I was like just completely taken aback. Um, cause like, especially because that comes right off the heels of emergency broadcast, which is like this really artsy kind of meandering track yeah. that you're not really sure where it's going the entire time. And so to me, like, even though a lot of people probably feel like, uh, they didn't really do much different to me, I was a lot more surprised. Um, with the like as the tracks were hitting me they 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 always went in directions i wasn't necessarily expecting and i feel like define the great line because it's like really cohesive and really makes sense from track to track like you can see uh kind of the progression of the songs as they as they're coming yeah which is really an awesome thing it's kind of cool but i think to me i kind of value being surprised um in music just because it doesn't really happen that often and so for that reason specifically, I would say it's better. Um, but it totally makes sense as to why it's not nearly as popular right. as Define the Great Line and Chasing Safety. Yeah, I, I had like the experience that you were just describing for some of those songs was the same experience I had yesterday. <laughs> because there's this uh, middle portion of the album that I have very little experience listening to. Mm-hmm. For this album and the following album, Disambiguation, listening, like, my experiences listening to these those albums from front to back all the way through, probably only done it, like, two or three times in my life. Wow. Um, it's like, if you go back to, you know, the 2008 when this came out, you know, I, I very quickly made up my mind about the album. I bought the four songs I wanted, kept those eventually just stopped being an active under oath fan um especially like when they broke up it was just kind of like a ah, i don't care much anymore um and disambiguation I, I i liked a lot of songs from i even had like a long period where i was touting that as my favorite of all the under oath albums um but that was also like a sort of like there was a weird anti-aaron mentality that i had then yeah or like i i I didn't like what was happening with the almost. I didn't like Aaron's solo stuff. I thought Aaron was the reason that they're only chasing safety was bad. And I mm-hmm. thought those were the cheesiest aspects of like to find a great line and lost and sound of big, or well, gosh, lost and sound of separation. So I was like, disambiguation. Yeah, we don't need Aaron. Under Earth is fine without him. Nice. I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> I, I, my, my anti Aaronness at that time was. It's funny I it's because kind of I think that, that whoever can... wrote the review for Disambiguation probably kind of shared your thoughts. Uh-huh. Uh, what were you saying? Is also funny, Mason? Or... Uh, well, I was just going to say it's funny that like, as fans, we can harbor certain sentiments towards musicians, even though there's like really no reason. Or, or we don't really know exactly what goes on behind the scenes, you know? Yeah. But like, it's so easy to to love or hate particular members in the band without really knowing know. anything. It, um, it, it really is weird how like personal it can get when yeah. like our listening experiences probably Yay, should be irrationality. Or, like we have no real like concrete, no like concrete tangible reason to make it so personal. Right. Yeah. But I, in a weird way, even though Aaron's one of my favorite musicians, I do agree that disambiguation was better without him um yeah i think maybe i don't know if 
maybe some of the sameness that you get from Lost in the Sound is because of the trading back and forth between Aaron and Spencer vocally right. and and the spe- the specific style that Aaron has as a drummer because it's I think it's really obvious to tell when Aaron is is playing on something mm-hmm. um which is good and bad and I think that uh what was his name Daniel Davison I think Daniel Davison yeah from yeah. Uh, Norma Jean right I think he brought like a lot more like complex meters and a lot of like two against three work that Aaron wasn't really ever doing. Aaron was more like, yeah. let me just hit everything. Um, yeah, he was, Dale Davidson did some really inventive stuff. Like I, yeah. I love him. And uh, I was already a fan of, you know, his work with Norma Jean and he just does some stuff on disambiguation. It's like, I've, I've never heard this beat before. Yeah. And it's because sure. he was okay with like doing something a little bit like simple in terms of, like I'm not playing a lot of things really fast, but just like putting things together in weird ways and like playing, uh, you know, this, hitting the snare a lot of, like offbeat times. Mm-hmm. It's really it colors that album really well. Um, yeah, it's just much more musically interesting. Um, yeah. Whereas with Aaron, it it felt like uh, it was more exciting, like it it hit you more. But I think with Daniel, he was more interested in like in coloring, like you said. Uh, Coloring the sound in a way that's really unique. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so yesterday I was hearing these albums all back to back. And so probably like my third or fourth time ever to hear Lost in the Sound all the way through. And again, probably my third or fourth time ever to hear Disambiguation all the way through. And uh, I, there's just all these songs that like I've never really spent very much time with. And the experience that really uh, shook me was this middle portion of Lost in the Sound with The Only Survivor Was Miraculously Unharmed, mm-hmm. We Are the Involuntary, The Created Void, and Coming Down is Calming Down. That portion of the album was so good. Yeah. <laughs> and like, how? why did I not want these songs? Like, why <laughs> did I think this was bad? Um, and hearing, hearing those and being so like awed by those a-W-E-D. And then hearing Disambiguation, which I've, again, like for for a while, touted as the, the, the best Under Oath album. Um, and actually, it, like, it made me like very supportive of Aaron being back and like the gang being back together, so to speak. Because Disambiguation and that's was not, good? That's not anything against Disambiguation. And it, like Disambiguation was a great opportunity for the band to uh, flex some different muscles. And for Spencer to grow in the way that it takes to be like the frontman and the only vocalist, and at that point he had become a much sturdier singer, and had like a really cool interplay between his clean and uh, screaming vocals. Yeah. But it's still it's still a great album. But it was just it was weird to listen to all these and be like these are all good, and mm-hmm. I I've been like picking and choosing and p- pitting albums against each other. <laughs> For all these years, when that in actuality, I'm a far greater fan of their entire discography than I actually thought I was. Nice. <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, that middle portion is like, for whatever reason, it's 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 more nuanced and more subtle than uh, people give it credit for. And I remember yeah. "We Are the Involuntary" was like the very first song that I recognized as being in five four, 
And like as mm. a music nerd, that was like, oh, this is so cool. Like it's not yeah. clap on on a two and four. Um I do think that uh with this ambiguation, like I suppose uh what makes it special is like it really feels like uh Spencer took over in a way that made everything feel like it was like he was more invested in it than he had been in Lost in the Sound. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but like to me, it feels like this is more disambiguation was more his thing, and uh, yeah, and for whatever reason, like the the going back and forth got a little bit old on uh, Lost in the Sound. Yeah, there's it, it's unified yeah. by a single vocalist that I really hope um, that unification like plays itself out on the new album. That mm-hmm. that everything will feel of a piece, even though it's back to two vocalists. And yeah. I, I have a I have a sneaky suspicion that Aaron is going to be fine letting Spencer take over for a lot of the new album, and not Probably. try to have a lot of his own verses and choruses. But we we shall see. Mark, do we have a we have a man once again? There it is again. It's fine. Everything's fine. See, seriously, how how many more different ways can I say eh, it just didn't leave an impact? <laughs> I don't know. We can try to. Uh, there's probably a million different ways to say that, but I I don't. Yeah, you it. you Chase, you've done I enough do, more than enough talking for me. So thank you for that. Anytime. <laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode of the JFH podcast, where we will be continuing this conversation as we discuss Under Oath's new music and whether or not JesusFreakHideout.com will be covering it. The JFH podcast is hosted by Mark Rice and me, Chase Tremaine. Production editing and music is also by me. The podcast is executive produced by John DiBiase and Christopher Smith. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast, please send an email to Christopher at JesusFreakHideout.com. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Eufaula, and do go check out the new album Between the Hills that Eufaula just released, and go to eufaulamusic.com for more. Now here is the full track, You Keep My Life.
I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's that dry humor.